Welcome to the New Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Genesis 45 through 50 and how they reflect God's providence in our world. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or the link that that I've been sending out. Um, And all of these links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, of course, please ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's bit.ly slash capital A lowercase s k hyphen capital O capital T. You can find that link in the show notes as well. So Genesis chapters 45 through 50 end the book of Genesis. And like any first book in a good series, Genesis wraps up its narrative with a satisfying conclusion while also foreshadowing some of the conflict that's coming up down the road later on in the scriptural narrative. Throughout these final chapters, there's a particular emphasis, as I said earlier, on God's providence. This idea of providence is invoked so frequently that I think that we forget what it actually means. Providence comes from the idea of provide or provision. And so when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about how God provides for us or how God offers provision, even or especially in situations that seem terrible or evil or, or, or bad of some sort. So this, this emphasis on God's providence uh, is that God was present even in, say, the sale of Joseph by his brothers. Uh, God was provident in that to bring Joseph to a place where God could use Joseph to deliver his father and his brothers along with uh, feed and care for all of the people of Egypt. You can see this idea present in Genesis 45, verse 7, and Genesis 50, verse 20. This idea that what you intended for evil, God intended for good, is how it's invoked in uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. Uh, and and in, in Genesis 45, it's that God has sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth, to preserve life. Now, This idea of providence can also be problematic. There are some people who use this idea that God brings good out of bad in order to excuse their own behavior or to try and explain why a terrible situation isn't so terrible. Maybe you've heard these people who, um, when they're trying to offer you comfort after um, you've lost a parent or, or another loved one, uh, these, these such people will say, well, you know, God brings good out of evil, or it's all in God's plan. And there is nobody in the history of the world that has ever been comforted by those things. If what you're going through is, is tragic, is, is truly a, a deep loss that you've experienced, uh, please don't use the providence of God in this way. Also, you know, just because God can bring good out of bad, that doesn't excuse the bad that we do. That doesn't excuse our own sin. God, yes, does constantly drive the universe toward justice and righteousness. But we've got the privilege of getting to partner with God in pursuing justice and righteousness. Our lives will be all the fuller if we do good 
and allow God to bring good out of that than if we do evil and allow God to bring good out of that. The question is not whether God will make all things beautiful in their time. Of course God will. The question is, will we attempt to be an obstruction or will we attempt to be partners? Uh, For example, look at how Jacob interacts with Pharaoh in Genesis 47 verses 8 through 10. Jacob could have uh, given God thanks for all the desires that God met, all the opportunities God gave him. But instead of doing that, Jacob describes the days of his life as having been few and evil or, or few and difficult, depending on your translation. And that's because throughout his entire life, Jacob tried to steer the ship of fate, wrestling with anyone and everyone who got between him and the steering wheel of his life. Jacob did not uh, lean on God's providence and try and do right by his fellow people. Instead, Jacob tried to make sure that no matter what happened, he would be in charge. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when talking about Jacob and his objectification. Um, Robert Alter, a phenomenal Hebrew scholar, uh, wrote a translation and commentary on the Old Testament. And in in discussing uh, Jacob's interaction with Pharaoh, uh, Robert Alter puts it this way. He writes, Jacob has, after all, achieved everything he aspired to achieve. The birthright, the blessing, marriage with his beloved Rachel, progeny and wealth, but one measure of the profound moral realism of the Genesis story is that although Jacob gets everything he wanted, it's not in the way he wanted, and the consequence is far more pain than contentment. From his clashing with his twin in the womb in Exodus 25, everything has been a struggle. He displaces Esau, but only at the price of fear and lingering guilt and long exile. He gets Rachel, but only by having Leah imposed on him with all the domestic strife that entails. And he loses Rachel early in childbirth. He's given a new name by his divine adversary, but comes away with a permanent wound. He gets the full solar year number of 12 sons, but there is enmity among them for which he bears some responsibility. And he spends 22 years continually grieving over his favorite son, Joseph, who he believes is dead. This is, in sum, a story with a happy ending that withholds any simple feeling of happiness at the end. This is what happens. That's the end of the quote, by the way. This is what happens when we rely on God to make all things beautiful without actually attempting to live a beautiful life ourselves, we get this sort of hollow victory, this, this pyrrhic success at the end of our lives. And that's not what we yearn for. spend a little bit of time looking at Joseph's life in Egypt. So Joseph is a shrewd administrator in Egypt. He's proven this already. We talked a little bit about this last week in thinking through Joseph's stewardship. And 
he's a shrewd administrator not only in how he meets out the the food um, at, at high cost, but also at how he deals with the people of Egypt when they come to him begging for another means of getting food. Uh, they've run out of money. Uh, there's no way for them to get money because Egypt is, is deeply agricultural in nature. And so when they run out of money, um, Joseph says, well, sell me your livestock. Okay, great. They sell him the livestock because what other option do they have? They need Joseph's food. Otherwise, they'll go hungry. When they run out of livestock and they come to Joseph and are like, well, shoot, we've got nothing except our very selves and our land. Joseph says, sell those to me too. And this is a very clever way for Joseph to extract maximum value from the Egyptian people. However, the ethics of it, I think, are questionable. I wonder if this sets the tone for the Pharaoh that ends up enslaving the Hebrew people. I'm actually indebted uh, to this observation uh, to my wife, Kate. Uh, she pointed this out to me earlier this week that Joseph instituted this slavery in Egypt. And, and it may well be that by extracting maximum value from the Egyptians, by leaving nothing on the table, Joseph was in fact shackling his great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, uh, unbeknownst to him. And, and so we see how Joseph leads Egypt with an iron hand um, and does so uh, perhaps out of necessity. If, if he were to uh, lead Egypt with a soft heart, he may have run out of food in year one with six more years of famine left to go. But the, uh, the contrast between Joseph as steward of Egypt versus Joseph as beloved son of Jacob, that contrast couldn't be any wider. When Jacob and Joseph reunite, when, when Jacob comes down to Egypt after initially disbelieving the report of Joseph's brothers, um, there is a, a tearful reunion. Uh, Joseph, by now in the narrative, has has gotten maybe a bit of a bit of typecasting where whenever something happens to touch Joseph, well, he cries. And this is um, in remarkable contrast to Joseph's father. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he and Benjamin share a tearful embrace where both are delighted to see the other, to, to be known to the other, and both are weeping with joy. When Joseph greets his father, Jacob, it, the text does not say that Jacob weeps. The text really only says that Joseph weeps. And we can imagine this emotionally stunted patriarch, this person, Jacob, for whom everything has been a wrestling match, not wanting to show emotion here at this time, uh, maybe perceiving that he needs to wrestle with his emotions so as not to appear weak before his sons, uh, so as not to appear weak before Joseph. And yet, had Jacob been a more together patriarch, perhaps he could have received the great joy of being reunited with his son Joseph by expressing these emotions, by tearfully embracing his son, instead of simply being the recipient of a tearful embrace himself. After Jacob and, and the rest of Joseph's brothers come down to, uh, to Egypt, there's this genealogy. The, the narrative pauses in order to express this genealogy. 
And any time that a genealogy pops up uh, in our reading, remember, each person named on this genealogy is a full person, just like you or me. And, and it, there's, there's a story that scripture does not always tell about that person's hopes and dreams about how God's light shone in their lives. And so, uh, as, as a, a scholar said, and I don't remember this scholar's name, um, this is sacred ground we walk on when we read genealogies. These are the heroes of our faith and the people they shared life with. So while uh, we've removed a number of genealogies from this, this first part of the reading plan by design, when we get a genealogy, remember um, that it is sacred ground we're walking on, that God was doing something new in the lives of these people, and so they are appropriately expressed in God's word. Uh, there's a question that um, uh, one of our readers expressed about the genealogy, and, and we'll get back to that. We're going to cover questions at the very end of the episode today. So the genealogy, I think, uh, there's, there's a couple of, there's one genealogy and there's something that's sort of like a genealogy here where Jacob blesses all of his sons. But before we get to that, um, let's look at Jacob's interaction with Joseph's sons. Now, Jacob, uh, what Jacob is doing with Joseph's sons in, in bringing them forward and in blessing them, Jacob is adopting Joseph's sons as his own. And there's, there's an interesting logic here. Jacob's wife, Rachel, had a, um, an untimely death. She, she died too soon. And Jacob probably yearned to have more children with this favored wife, Rachel, uh, not being able to have children earlier in their marriage because of her barrenness. And so her premature death uh, stole a number of potential sons from Rachel. So Jacob, on his deathbed, perhaps is uh, yearning for, for more sons with his favored wife, and so decides to adopt Joseph's sons, Jacob's grandsons, as his own, and does so in an, uh, uh, avoiding primogeniture in an almost comedic way. It's, it's ridiculous. Jacob stretches out his, his arms crosswise, blessing Ephraim first and Manasseh second, despite Manasseh being the older son. It may well be that Jacob has seen um, how his life was different because of how primogeniture was not the case, how Esau did not receive the blessing, and so wants to continue this almost chaos of, of not, um, not holding to the rule of the firstborn getting the blessing. So Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his sons. And, and Jacob blesses the rest of his sons as well. And, and this blessing is one of the oldest parts of scripture, scholars think, because of how elevated the prose is, how ancient the, the, the poetry is here. And, and in this blessing, we can see the perfect alignment of human choice and divine providence. So much of what Jacob says is tailored to the individual sons, but will later become emblematic of their tribes. That the, the, there's free will at work here with the sons choosing how they're going to act and how that colors the perception of them in Jacob's eyes. But there's also divine providence in how their tribes continue to act sort of as their leader did 
Judah is a great example of this, where the, the man, Judah, was someone who stepped into a difficult situation with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi all abandoning their responsibility, Judah steps in um, and leads. And so Judah will have the gift of leadership. The tribe of Judah will have the gift of leadership from here. I love how some of these blessings are uh, almost curses in nature and how some of the blessings you can see who Jacob loves and who Jacob uh, sort of sees as sort of like, eh, I guess that person's my son. Um, love may be the wrong word. It's, it, it demonstrates who Jacob is in many ways, how Jacob sees people sometimes as objects. In the very last chapter, we can see how Joseph never forgot that God promised to bring back the children of Israel to the land of promise, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while Joseph was Egyptian in many ways, even his age, uh, 110, was the, the fullness of years for Egyptians, not for Hebrews, for which it's 120. Uh, even though he was Egyptian in many ways, Joseph yearned to return to the land of his fathers and so charges the rest of his progeny and, and his brother's progeny, bring me back, bring my bones back to the promised land. questions that were asked of uh, these chapters in Genesis. So we're going to wrap up our time together with uh, some, some Q&A. And if you have questions about these or, or future readings, you can always ask them at bit.ly slash capital A-S-K hyphen capital O capital T. Uh, I always look forward to seeing some questions. There were three questions that came in this week. Uh, the first one was from Rita L. And she asks, are Benjamin's sons named Muppin and Huppin in Genesis 46? Are they twins? Uh, Rita's referring to Muppin and Huppin, in, in, like she says, in Genesis 46. This is the genealogy of a number of Jacob's sons as they're coming down to Egypt. And fun fact about this genealogy, before we get to the question, is that the total number of names in this genealogy are perfectly structured in order to give 70 names, the number of completion. Uh, uh, or the number, yeah, the number of completion, I guess is the right way to put it. Seven is the number of perfection. 10 is sort of a complete number. So, so seven times 10 giving you 70, perfect completion. So Muppin and Huppin don't seem to be twins. We know that because the Bible tends to name twins when they occur. And neither in this list nor in a very similar list in Numbers 26 are these sons of Benjamin named as twins. Um, we see this for um, the, the sons of Tamar that she has with uh, her father-in-law, Judah. Uh, they're described as twins. And also with Jacob and Esau, they're described as twins. Um, it, it wouldn't make sense, I think, for the writers not to name it if it were the case. So no, I don't believe they were. Rita L. also asked, um, in Genesis 46, why did the Egyptians detest shepherds? Did they just think them unclean? And this is the, the very last verse of, Egyptian, uh, excuse me, of Genesis 46. And I think what's, what's more likely here actually um, is that the Egyptians were an agricultural people. This is why uh, when they couldn't grow crops, they didn't really have anything to fall back on. Um, that means also that they weren't nomadic. You can't be agricultural and nomadic. You have to stick with your crops. And, and so because they weren't nomadic, they thought that the semi-nomadic herdsfolk that lived in the north, like the Hebrews, were inferior 
In fact, the term Hebrew has a really interesting linguistic background. Um, some scholars think that Hebrew may have been a slur, meaning something like dirty border crosser. And that reflected the Egyptian elitism that was that's suggested by saying that they detested shepherds. So um, Hebrew uh, has, has just a very similar uh, background as what some Americans say about folks who try to cross our border and, and God chooses the Hebrew people as God's people. I don't think we should miss this. I don't know that we should read too much into it, but let's also not miss that, that, that point there. Dave C. Uh, asks, in chapter 47, we see again the phrase, put your hand under my thigh, being used uh, to ask somebody to make a promise. And Dave asks if we could provide a little more context. Well, yeah, um, this was an ancient Near Eastern practice, putting uh, someone's hand under your thigh uh, for a particularly important charge. Um, We see this with Abraham and his servant as Abraham charges his servant to get his son Isaac a wife, Rebecca. We also see this with uh, Jacob and Joseph as Jacob gives instruction for his burial in chapter 47. Placing the hand under the thigh and that may be a euphemism for holding the genitals. That was an ancient form of oath-taking, saying something like, I trust you to do this thing I'm charging you to do in the same way that I trust you not to hurt me in this vulnerable position. Perhaps there's something going on like if you fail to do this, you would be hurting me just as much as if you took advantage of me here. So if you, again, have any questions, you know uh, where to put them. I, I'd love to hear from you. This is the end of our study of Genesis. As we enter into Exodus uh, 1 through 6 next week, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Scripture.